Hello and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. I'm Tom Abbott and this week we continue our discussion on the culture and science of genetics with Professor Zander Gilman of Emory University. Zander, what is the reality of genes? What do we mean by the reality of genetics or, or of a particular gene? Well, I, I think you want to start by disabusing oneself that the notion of reality is somehow or another the notion of a kind of fixed point where you know everything that there is to know. Um, the most interesting thing about the history of science is that it is from its inception, let us say, with the ancient Greeks or in, in ancient China, a dynamic process. Um, in, it's a dynamic process that constantly re-examines what it has found in the natural world, reinterprets what it has found, um, re-theorizes what it has found. Um, that is, science is, in point of fact, always process rather than the end point. And when we look at genetics, um, in terms of modern genetics, 21st century genetics, we're looking at a very, very recent science. That is, if you wanted to talk about um, notions of inheritance, you could go back to the beginning of modern science. But if you wanted to talk about how inheritance is actually um, manifest, uh, we have... If you go back to Mendel, we have maybe 150 years of that dynamic process of discovery, reinterpretation, re-theorizing. Um, what has happened in the last 20 years, and um, maybe we can date it back to the 1950s with the discovery of DNA, with the, the modality by which inheritance is, in point of fact, um, coded, right? Um, is that we are learning more and more and more about the complexity of what we now call genetics. Um, if I can sort of use a kind of simple-minded example, when Mendel, when Gregor Mendel was working in his garden um, in uh, Austria in the 1850s and 1860s, um, he was working with sweet pea plants. And he was interested in the variables, the fact that there were white flowers and pink flowers. There were tall plants and short plants. There were plants that had gnarly peas and plants that had smooth peas. And so uh, what he wanted to do was to figure out um, if you bred pink flowers with long stems and gnarly peas together with short stems and white flowers and smooth peas, what would the ratio be um, of these variables. And he came up with a very simple model uh, of inheritance, um, which is, or was at least for his time and really through the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Mendel is rediscovered in around 1900. His papers were not read for 40 years. If you then say, um, is this a helpful model? The answer is, of course it's a helpful model. It says something about how things get passed through the generations, but is it a helpful model in understanding the complexity of the new genetics? The answer is no, and point of fact, there's a desire always to reduce things to a simple level, and what we've learned over the last 20 years, one is that the interaction of 
our experience in the world as an organism, even if you're a sweet bee, right? Mm. And your inheritance go hand in hand. So in point of fact, even though you may inherit a predisposition for a disease, you may have to be in a specific environment for that disease to manifest itself. And that if Darwin was right, and I don't think I have any reason to doubt him in general, even though I may doubt him in particulars, um, if Darwin was right, the human genome, uh, the genome of the sweet pea is also constantly changing. It's a kind of moving target in terms of how the genetic information is expressed in the world, and equally complicated the fact that the genetic information itself is always changing. We talk about mutation as if mutation were kind of an abnormal activity. In point of fact, mutation is the basis of all evolution. Some mutation winds up being positive, some winds up being negative, but it's the way, in point of fact, everything from sweet peas to people um, have changed and are constantly changing and will be constantly changing. The exercise in cataloging the genome is, is no more than a snapshot of a particular moment it, it, in time. It's exactly a snapshot, and what we're doing now, and that's why it's so exciting, is that we're now mapping diverse populations. That is, we're going into a city like Atlanta, and by the way, it's a real example, not a made-up example. We're going to a city like uh, Atlanta, and we're going to a big public hospital, and we're mapping now the genetic materials of everybody who happens to come into that hospital. And so what we're starting to see is the complexity even of that snapshot. Now, what we really want to have and, you know, we're doing it a little bit retrospectively, and we can do that genetically, is to look back in history over the changes, but also then once we, in a sense, get the snapshot, um, we then want to take snapshots on a regular basis over time, by the way, for the individual, as well as for populations, to see in point of fact how you change over time as an individual and how populations change over time. If I can use the snapshot example, um, and, and I hate extending metaphors infinitely, but we could use that, which is that everybody has a baby picture. Everybody has a baby picture. It's one of the things we do is we take pictures of babies. And one of the great embarrassments to a 50-year-old politician is to show that person's baby picture. What we're talking about is having baby pictures on a you know monthly yearly basis so that we can track changes and then over the generations over time with greater info into intervals to try to see how these changes manifest themselves that's the first level um that is we really want to understand how things change um this is a fact that genetics looks at which is how things change over time. And, of course, one of the reasons we're interested, because in point of fact, we are convinced, and I, and I think there is convincing information out there, that there are an awful lot of pathologies, and by the way, in sweet peas as well as people, um, that in point of fact also get passed down from generation to generation. And one of the questions is to identify in a very limited and discreet way what those pathologies are, and to see whether or not, and we don't have those tools now, now this, we're going to the realm of science fiction, uh, whether or not there can be some way of changing or repairing 
those genetic errors. Talk about them as errors, though, of course, the gene doesn't know they're errors. They're just mutations, right? That's neutral. Um, that causes uh, disease um, in plants and animals. Now, having said that, right, there is, of course, a big debate about what is healthy, what is normal, what is diseased, um, what is not diseased, and that's because we're human beings in society and we're debating this constantly. One of the things we debate, thus, thus, um, there is an inherited form of deafness, of profound deafness. We know that because we know that uh, with deaf parents there is a fairly high um, rate uh, that their children are also profoundly deaf. Um, there has developed since the 19th century deaf culture. Um, sign language in the UK, in the United States, in Germany, and France um, has developed as living languages. There are institutions, universities that uh, teach people who are deaf um, through sign language. Um, there is a sense of cohesion within the deaf community. And now when I say to people, you know, we may get to a point where we can remedy deafness, many people say to me, but that's the way we, that's our identity. Our identity is as deaf people, we want to have deaf children. Now, that's a public debate, and we really should have those debates about a wide range of things that are, from the standpoint of, what is called allopathic or you know mainstream medicine seen as pathologies or diseases everything from dwarf stature to to um, uh, to deafness mm-hmm. having said that very few people would think about the potential for an inherited form of cancer a very specific form of cancer as something that forms identity even though clearly catastrophic diseases, chronic diseases, forms your identity. So again, an interesting conversation that we're having right now. There's an interesting question there about identity and the relationship with genetic science. In Absolutely. The, the, the discourse that occurs around genetics, certainly in, in terms of the popular discourse, does that actually recognize the complexity of the argument and, and the, the emphasis on change? Or is the popular discourse on genetics actually more about using genetics to justify a predetermined sense of identity or the society within which we're operating? Well, you know, um, if I may quote um, Basil Fawlty, because one always quotes Basil Fawlty at these moments, just don't talk about the war. (laughs) That is, one of the things you've got to then understand is that the question you've just asked me has very specific national implications. If we can start to think about the difference between, let us say, Germany and Argentina, Argentina has and still has a kind of culture of white whitening. That is, the notion is that there is a kind of uh, cultural improvement as the country becomes more and more European slash white. Okay, um, it's coded in very complicated ways in Argentinian culture, but it's pretty much the case. Um, in Germany, that very notion is an anathema because of the Holocaust. So one of the questions we want to really ask is when we talk about popular reception of notions of genetics is, is the culture in which these popular notions occur a culture which is primed to see such changes, potential changes, potential discussions of identity, 
as positive or negative. Um, and I'll give you a, an example, which is a very important one over the last few years in the United States and in the U.K., 1960s, 1970s, beginning of the homosexual emancipation movement, um, homosexuality uh, was categorized as a disease by the American Psychiatric Association and pretty much seen as a psychiatric disorder in the U.K. also. Um, through a great deal of political and intellectual debate, um, homosexuality is eliminated as a disease category, as a psychopathology, as a character disorder. It becomes a form of identity. Over the last decade, and very much tied to the developments in genetics, um, there has been a very powerful debate in the UK and the United States which wants to get rid of the notion of homosexuality completely, that debate has taken place in the gay community. Because in the gay community, the notion of homosexuality is tied somehow or another to um, choice and to the kind of politics of identity of the 60s and 70s. And there's been a, a rise of what is called queer identity, um, which is driving out homosexual identity, and queer identity is seen as biologically determined. The only really queer people are people who are biologically, that means genetically predetermined to be gay. And that's a really interesting debate. Um, that means just because you undertake homosexual contact, it doesn't mean in point of fact you are really queer. And so there's been this odd genetic litmus test in an area where we wouldn't have imagined it. Right, because it was an area where there was a kind of biological predeterminism for homosexuality as a disease in the 60s, and now there is a positive valence to queer identity defined purely in terms of genetic, purely in terms of biological inheritance. That's a real complicated issue, and a complicated issue which looks at where notions of sexual identity and gender identity um, take place in the West, specifically in the United States and the UK, as opposed to other parts of the world, and where the whole notion of a biological underpinning um, is understood as being the litmus test between real and unreal, between inauthentic, merely performative, and really authentic, meaning biological. Science and philosophy have been intertwined I mean, throughout history, but what you've said there suggests that genetic science challenges um, some of the underlying notions that have driven the philosophical, philosophical development of, of much of Western philosophy in a way that's probably never happened before. Um, the whole notion of, of free will, freedom of choice, is, is, some, is, is something that the, the advances in genetic science almost, say, go out the window. Does the relationship between genetic science and the kind of ethical frameworks that we operate in, are we having to re completely reassess the way that we view society and culture on the basis of that genetic understanding? Well, you know, but it's an interesting question because this, I mean, I'll go back to the phrase that you use, which is a nice theological one, which is the notion of free will. Um, it's a very complicated question to ask whether or not notions of genetic eliminates the question of free will. 
Um, I'm going to make an argument, by the way, that it does not, because in point of fact, again, all of these choices, for example, in terms of character development and other questions that have to do with uh, the relationship between, can we say, the ineffable aspects of human um, of human nature and a genetic underpinning, are at this point very, very poorly understood and, in point of fact, are in a very odd way being obfuscated by claims of evolutionary biology, which says, you know, men are like this because at some point a Neolithic man went out and did this, and now this is a kind of a... Uh, you know, a primitive part of what all men are like, or, um, you know, we, we need to have um, uh, altruism because altruism is a way of, produce, uh, pr- of um, protecting our genetic inheritance and so forth and so on. Now, those are debates that have taken place which want to vitiate notions of, of change, and, and I think the question of free will comes in here in a very complicated and real way. And the answer, the the short answer to your question is no. On the contrary, the philosophical issues that have been debated since Aristotle and Plato about what makes human beings human beings are, in point of fact, exactly those same questions that get debated within genetics because the question is always what are the limits of inheritance? What, in point of fact, is the way that inheritance is impacted by our lived experience now, we know now, for example, that it isn't just the brain structures um, that we are born with that determines the brains that we have as we become adults, because brains are plastic. They rep- the, the physical, anatomical brain responds, in point of fact, to our experience in the world. Um, and the genome is exactly the same thing. It responds to the experience of individuals and populations in the world. So to say, well... If if you inherit the gene for happiness, it eliminates your choice of being happy or not, right? Being free will, uh, having free will um, is of course patently nonsense. At uh, some other when we see, sub- substitute the word depression for happiness, it sounds more scientific, right? Mm-hmm. To say that there is a kind of a gene for depression. Now there may well be a whole complex interrelationship of genes that provide an substratum for some small number of human beings who in specific life experiences will experience in point of fact clinical depression but that's a big difference than saying there's a gene for depression there's a tendency i suppose in this notion of not seeing the complexities of looking for simple you know a simplistic or a reductivist way of of explaining something that is as complex as mm-hmm. genetic science that we we break it we, we bring it right down to kind of basics like there is a, a a gene for obesity um there is a gene for happiness and thus you know we can cure obesity we can or you know we can make sure that everyone's happy genetics becomes a kind of magic bullet issue for very simplistic it, it is very but simplistic again conditions and in the same way i suppose that people looked at looked at atomic science in the 50s as a, as a silver bullet for all our problems of uh, you know energy and all those sorts of things. But this is precisely the analogy, and I'm glad you used it, that I was going to use, which is that there is a tendency in the history of science, in developing sciences, 
And you can start out, by the way, with the smelting of metals in ancient Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Up through, indeed, the development of uh, the atomic pile in the 1940s. Um, there's a tendency for all developing sciences to be utopian. Yeah. If we only have all of this potential knowledge, we will be able to, right? And the answer is, some of that's going to happen, and a lot of it's not going to happen. Um, and that's why, again, you've got to think of, dyna- of science as dynamic, always discovering, always reinterpreting, always re-theorizing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, ironically, with the atomic pile, gone from, and it's a very interesting one, gone from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 1945, through to the 1950s and 60s. Atomic energy will make all energy free. We will have no pollution at all. Um, All the coal will be gone. Um, An ideal state through to Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Atomic energy uh, is as bad as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's going to create incredible horrors. We're all going to die of radiation poisoning. Two, post-Kyoto discussions in which one of the very few forms of clean energy that most people agree on is atomic energy, Mm. right? Um, And and so, I mean, again, that's a very mechanical thing. I mean, that has to do indeed with a kind of reinterpretation, re-theorizing, rethinking through, but also changing technologies about what atomic energy means. Um, And that in a period of time of what, 55, 60 years? Genetics is undertaking much much the same set of discovering, claiming, reinterpreting, re-theorizing, limiting claims, making new claims, and that's okay. That's the way science works. I was going to ask whether you see a sim- whether you see that there's going to be a, a similar cycle for for genetics. Well, there is already. Um, I mean, the very term Frankengene, right? Um, is something which I find unbelievably interesting. That is, we have been modifying crops since we started farming. It's one of the things we do, right? We find something and we breed it and then we make it better in terms of our its usefulness for us. Maybe not better in terms of the plant, but its usefulness for us. Um, and now we have another way of doing that, but that's seen as you know, culturally unacceptable, and the very phrase Frankengene is a fascinating one for me because it goes back to Frankenstein, the creation of these monsters that get out of control. We, of course, forget, of course, that Frankenstein's monster is the great sympathetic feature, uh, creature in that novel. Right? He's the one that we all empathize with when we read the novel. Um, he's not the horror. The horror, in point of fact, is Dr. Frankenstein who tries to create life. Um, so maybe we should think a little bit about, you know, again, how we imagine genetics and the dangers and difficulties, and they're real, that are associated with genetic information, but also without immediately demonizing or overpraising what genetics can do. So to, to draw the Frankenstein analogy, then, are you sort of, is it a suggestion that we should be more concerned with the scientists than the science? I think one of the things that we want to think about very hard is that the 
way that modern science works is that scientists have to make claims in order to get funding that are oftentimes greater than the science themselves. I have discovered the depression gene, right? Uh, well, actually, I found a mutation in one family in Pennsylvania that has chronic depression in generation after generation. Those are the kind of um, claims I, I just have seen that the Welcome um, Institute, the Welcome Foundation, which funds an awful lot of genetic um, uh, research right now, has made claims about the fact that there are now all of these breakthroughs, including the identification of the obesity gene. And the implications of that press release is now we can fight obesity. Well, if the obesity gene were the only cause of obesity, that is, if a malfunction in human beings in the obesity gene uh, which forced people to accumulate fat, right, were the sole cause of obesity, then in point of fact that claim would be interesting. In point of fact, the mechanism is very complicated. The experience in the world is oftentimes much more important than the, than the gene itself. And what we found, of course, is very, 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 very few people who actually have a faulty obesity gene which makes them gain weight irrespective of what they consume. So, again, I, I, I'm always warning scientists, don't make claims either in terms of your discoveries or potential cures that are greater than you can fulfill. And by the way, the best scientists don't. But it is a problem of funding which is an institutional problem, it is not a problem of the science itself. But there's an issue there, isn't there? That what, oh, we, yeah. what we're doing is that we're defining the science by the hopes and dreams that as a society or as a culture we have for genetics and thus changing the received truth about what genetics actually is. Well, I, again, I think that's always the case, which is remember that the scientists themselves are part of a general culture. They, too, share visions and fears, right? It's not just that it's them and us. There aren't two um, worlds. There is one world in which the scientist functions both as a scientist and as a member of the general culture. And there are scientists, as we know, who warn us about things. There are scientists who advocate things. Um, but these are parts of general discussions that we should be having in the society without, in a sense, immediately saying, let us be fearful of the science. Because in point of fact, there are things about genetics in terms just of the sheer information that it is giving us and for potential interventions, which I think we should be, you know, aware of and we should debate. And, and you know, those debates take place not only in the newspapers and in novels, but also in Parliament and in the U.S. Congress. Um, you know, what do we permit? Um, what sort of research is acceptable? Uh, what sort of research is not acceptable? And those are decisions we make as nations and as societies. So to, to sum up, what, what would your visions and fears be for the development of, of the science and its relationship with the world around us for the, next, in, in, for the near future? Well, I think that my biggest fear at this point is my fear of greater claims than the science itself can fulfill. That is, 
I think that the difficulty right now is the genetic science is at the very, very, very beginning of its exploration. Um, and at the very beginning, there is a tendency to say, um, if you give me three ships, I will be able to fly. I'll be able to sail to China, right? Um, poor Columbus then winds, winds up, you know, bumping into Cuba and you know wastes all of that money that he could have, you know, should have spent trying to find the the spices of the Orient. Um, now, that's part of the problem we have right now, which is that there are great claims. And oftentimes, then, different kinds of endpoints. We don't have, at this point, any interventions, for example, that can alter genetically transmitted illnesses. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point in my lifetime, in, in the next um, generation, that we'll come to a point where we develop these, but we can't simply say, you know, this will happen. Um, this is something that we have to, in a sense, examine um, in terms of what are the promises. But also then, and here is the other side of it, if there are claims that are unsubstantiated, there are also fears that are un unsubstantiated. And I'm very anxious about those fears precluding then the science taking place. So that's where I would be. If you would like to comment on anything you've heard, then you can do so by visiting the Warwick Podcasts page at www.warwick.ac.uk slash go slash podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.